Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy uh, Syracuse is retreating really well uh, in basketball week. Yeah, we're back, sort of. Uh, it's something. Just that we're, it, it's something where we, we have one top 50 player and another player who was top 50 to 80 until he reclassified for uh, for 2020. So that's good. I think in general, like last few additions for Syracuse have definitely looked like things are trending upwards. It seems like, um, you know, Coach Autry and Coach McNamara have really upped their game of late. Um, I know a lot of the like kind of concern around recruiting since Hopkins left was if we can get, you know, top 100 caliber players and top 50 caliber players and until recently it hasn't necessarily been the case but uh, I, I like where things are trending yeah no i mean definitely these last couple classes um or the upcoming couple classes it seems like things are returning to where they were if not in the like times where we were beating adults for five stars but like you know the 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 mid 2000 or the late 2000s early 2010s where we were you know very competitive with uh, a lot of these players but um obviously like canary richmond has been like steadily rising uh in the rankings since we got him um you alluded to frank uh and Selim's, uh reclassification which kind of set him back in terms of the rankings but like who cares like if he was a top 50 player in 2021 i'm not going to fret over the fact that he's not the same uh doesn't have the same numbers for 2020 it's i'm glad to have him um benny williams just streams like classic syracuse wing um and then, obviously, uh, Deer Johnson, who is a little farther out, is like the biggest recruit in, in a long time. So definitely things are trending upward and answering some of those post-hop questions. Um, and hopefully it's just like a matter of growth from the staff. Like they, they you know, all needed to come together to, to try to fill that, that void. And, you know, it's kind of understandable if it took a couple of years, but... Um, I definitely think there are good indicators in that direction. Yeah, I completely agree. And really, like you look at Anselm further, um, you know, a guy who had, you know, Kentucky interest and LSU interest and uh, Arkansas interest and a bunch of other schools, obviously, like it was really between like us and San Diego State uh, when it came to the end. But, you know, anytime Coach Cal's sniffing around or or, uh, Coach K sniffing around, you know, it it means you got yourself a pretty quality player. Um, obviously like, you know, Jim Beheim said himself, he doesn't really want to be going up against Duke and Kentucky and Kansas and North Carolina for players, um, all the time, because really we do rarely win those fights. Um, and I think, you know, you and I have talked about this at length, um, in the post sanctions world, we, uh, we, we really had to, you know, kind of try to make the most out of, out of fewer spots and fewer recruiting hours and things like that. So we, ended up having to wade into five-star waters maybe more often than Jim Beheim would have liked to, or, you know, one and done type players or just guys who were on Kentucky and Duke's radar a bit more. Um, and obviously like, you know, th- those programs aren't miles and miles ahead of us, but in terms of their ability to get players to the NBA, they usually are. And they're usually going to be getting just more blue chippers than anybody else. So for us, you know, competing against them year in and year out, not always the best uh, setup. And, and not really the best, you know, place for SU success. I think again, Beheim knows that. Now I think you're seeing more of a more of a level set. I think it's a couple of years to 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 respond to the now post sanctions world where we don't have the same limits, we don't have the same scholarship limitations or hours or anything like that. And now you're seeing, you know, kind of this staff really find a rhythm um, and, and and find success when it comes to both transfers and to uh, players in high school. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of like finding what works and like what's the best allocation of recruiting resources because going after, you know, every five star kid that's probably going to end up coming down to Kentucky or Duke or like maybe another program they have a deeper connection to, 
Um, it's just a hard path to tread. And for a while, we were actually having some real success there with the Malachi Richardsons, the Fab Mellows, uh, a couple of the other guys of that ilk. Um, now, I think it's it's a much smarter play to like identify early the guys that you think you have a legit chance with. Like D.R. Johnson's, the, I think, the top committed player in his class. Like He's a huge, huge recruit. Um, but we knew we had a shot with him, so we we got on him early and got that super early commitment that'll hopefully hold on. Um, but from there, like I think combining that kind of situation where you you just have a sense that you have a legitimate shot and you're not going to be wasting your time, um, and then supplementing it with like really good two three year players, like you know what maybe what a Benny Williams turns into, and building out the classes so like you can compete with the elite. Uh, talent programs by combining like really really good slightly more veteran players with like the occasional uh you know one and done type or you know a transfer of some sort that has uh, that brings a lot but uh, i think you you know trying to piece together and finding how to maximize talent versus just going hard after the the top top guys and only landing once one every couple of years is not going to cut it and then having to settle for more down the list guys because you weren't able to uh recruit some other guys you might have had a better chance with uh, throughout the process. So hopefully we're seeing more of that. And that's what it, it certainly feels like with the recent news. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, like just having having an ability to, you know, get in on a guy early, like you said, with your Johnson or just some of these other guys, like just being able to to close late on on a couple targets. And, and with uh, like with Anselm, obviously, like we were in already and then his his reclassification helped us out tremendously because I think he could, I think he might redshirt this year, but I think, you know, he, he's a guy who could be a, 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 you know, three, four year player, somebody who has a seven foot five wingspan, which is really exciting. Then like Benny Williams, like you said, a type of guy who, you know, doesn't like, he's a top 50 player, but he also doesn't necessarily have at least right now that like straight to the NBA uh, trajectory, which is like exactly where I think SU's really thrived a ton um, over the years and now like like we've been talking about here like you're seeing a return uh, to that sort of setup like SU was never going to be able to um, succeed on like one and done types because especially at the at the rate of success we've had you know if you get one every three years great so like what are you doing with the rest of the roster it can't be um, you know one five star and and a bunch of guys who you know are much more likely to be you know, four-year players at, at, at Wake Forest or St. Louis or DePaul. Um, and that's no offense to some of the guys we've had, but realistically, like from a, like across the board talent perspective, um, according to the rankings, at least, um, I feel like we've, and, and some fans probably agree with this, like we, we've definitely trended more towards the the middle to bottom of the pack in the ACC um, based on the, the, the raw numbers. Um, because of maybe a style that was a little too focused on one and dones, and again, to, to I wouldn't say to entirely our own fault there. Yeah, I think it's just like a you know things things have changed a lot in the recruiting. Like for for a while there, when we were getting those kind of players, it like Duke wasn't as singly uh, singularly focused on getting them. Like Duke is is pretty um, drastically changed their approach to like you know, landing four or five huge, huge recruits every year and then kind of supplementing them with, like, true role players. Um, Kentucky's obviously been doing this for a while, and they don't even go for, like, the role players as much to kind of, like, some just kind of wind up that way. But when, like, the the, the five-star market is so focused on two schools and then, like, you'll see the occasional Michigan State or Ohio State or whomever get involved with, like, one or two guys, which is kind of what we I think we're shifting towards, um, it becomes very difficult because, like, those two programs just have 
such a track record now of getting those dies to the league. And they've just basically dedicated themselves to doing that. Um, it just has become very hard to break through. So uh, no. And, and also, you know, there's, a, there's something to, especially if there's like a, a, a the one and done rules shot down, there will be something to like uh, being in a place where you can already build a program kind of the way that might be uh, better off in that new reality. And it seems like that rule will change at some point soon. Like, Duke and Kentucky are going to, I don't think they'll have any real problem, but they're going to have to reshift their focus, I think, a lot more than a Syracuse will. Um, so, yeah, it's just uh, trying to see where the, which way the wind blows. And a lot of it was just hop leaving. That was a, he was our best recruiter for decades. Uh, and that's a big blow. And, and you know, maybe we, were, we weren't all that realistic in how quickly we were going to be able to, to shore that up. Yeah, it's a completely fair point. And you look at what he's been able to do recruiting wise. I mean, obviously last season, like the bottom kind of fell out a little bit, but what he's been able to do at Washington with like middling results on, on the court, he's still able to, to pull in, you know, some really good classes and some really great players. Um, his, his reputation obviously precedes him. And I, and I think that, you know, we, we, we won't talk about like eventual down the road Bayheim successors on this show necessarily, but uh, I do think that, you know, he, he still needs to be at the top of the list unless there is a firm no um, in place from him to Syracuse. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting situation. Um, I'm really excited about like the direction that we've gotten. I think the the two recruits we just got are, are you know kind of fit the molds for their positions that we see, like a a big athletic shot blocker. I saw some people comparing uh, Anselm to uh, to Rack Routine Christmas, who uh, you know if if he's anywhere near senior year Rack, I think we'll be very very excited about that. Um, you know, there's a chance maybe he'll be a little better early on uh just christmas had that really really crazy like really steep development curve um and then benny williams i think just like screams like smooth uh three or four uh nice jumper athletic um really reminded me of like a, almost like a rady cj fair uh same basically size from maryland um so yeah like that's that's the kind of player i always love su having and for that like long run where we always had a guy kind of like that chris joseph um just that classic syracuse wing yeah, I was going to say, like, I, the second I looked at his film, I'm like, oh, so you're CJ Fair, Chris Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> like, the fill in the blank uh, for, for the sort of wing that SU had. SU's had for a long time, but in particular, um, you know, in that 2000, really 2004 to, to 2012 range in particular, where, like, you could just rattle off a list of really good college players. Um, and guys who you know got NBA looks, but whatever. Like realistically, they were great. They were great Syracuse players, and, and they and they had great careers uh, with the Orange. And I think you know if if Williams is able to turn into that um, as, as as a floor, and I mean, who knows? But but I think I think it's realistic. Like I, I think you're pretty happy with that, obviously. And I hope he's able to you know be part of what could be a really exciting core um, toward the end of Bayheim's career. Uh, where you know you have guys like him, you have some of the younger players on the roster right now. Obviously, Dior Johnson coming in for 2022. Like there could be a really great group in there for the 2022-23 season um, with, with, with a with an uptick in talent level. And you know that kind of brings us over to Anselm, who, like like you said, I think some great you know shot blocking ability, but also just like the, the sort of length that that I think this zone really thrives on and has kind of lacked lately. Um, at least with two-way players, um, you know, Brahma Sidibe is a, you know, taller guy, bigger guy, you know, someone like John Balajak is, is, is taller and bigger. Obviously, Dwan Coleman was big. Like, they're, they're, we've had bigger players in the middle of the zone, uh, but I think that in part, like, the, the way the game's evolved has forced us to 
play a little bit smaller and and end up with more players um, on the court uh, defensively who might not necessarily be a factor on offense. And I think not to slight the guys that we've had in the middle, but I, I do think that Anselm at least seems to have a little bit more offensive upside um, on par with like a Jesse Edwards. Uh, and, and that should really be, that should really excite people. Maybe not this coming year, but you know, in, in future seasons, once he gets rolling. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've been playing kind of four on five uh, with the center position pretty much every year since rack uh, rack transferred or going really small where you have a Tyler Lydon or a Marek Dolzhai on the middle in the middle, which is not ideal uh, defensively either. Um, so we've been trying to, it's been a very difficult uh, situation with that position. Um, so if he can, you know, just give us something on offense and then be the kind of defensive player that we, that we like to plug in there. Like that'll be a big boost versus, um, you know, worrying that your center might only score four points in a night. Yeah, really that, that, that to me, that combo with ISO ball, which really ISO ball, I think almost comes from that um, just because of, you know, the fact that you can then ignore one of the players on the floor. If you have the opposing defense, like we have such a, we have such a trend toward, like this really like kind of stale style of basketball that we started breaking out of last year. But I think until the center position is a greater offensive force, you're not going to see it be able to to be as efficient as it could be. I know we've talked about this, like last year's team was just not an efficient three point shooting team. They weren't like, they, they were a decent offense, but they weren't necessarily efficient. They, they would wildly kind of ebb and flow between games where they could score above 80 to games where, you know, it would seem like they'd scrape by to get to the mid 60s, uh, you know, or low 70s. And, and a lot of that's efficiency based. And I think if you have five shooters on the floor and and, and capable defenders at that as well, like the, that's when a, a three point heavy offense. And that's probably what you're going to end up with for a while now uh, with Buddy Bayheim and Joe Girard on the floor. Uh, you, you do need everybody on deck. You can't have this. You, you can't have somebody be a bit of a black hole on offense or just be a complete non-factor because it, it it ruins ball movement, ruins rotation, ruins everything to the point. And again, not knocking individual players, but it, it ruins things if you want to have a free-flowing kind of Warriors-style um, offense if, if everyone can't participate in that. Yeah, and like even with some of the – I enjoy like a, a heavy three-point uh, barrage, but it's obviously only as – only as uh, successful as it, you know, is on a given night. And there have been plenty of nights where the whole team has been cold. And, like, to, to make, like, a football analogy, like, that's where you need to be able to, like, just run the ball and, like, play defense and and get some yards and get some first downs in the ground if, like, you know, your passing attack isn't working. And that's been a real issue because we haven't had those, like, A, the dynamic just get to the ball to the hoop with Johnny Flynn or Deion Waiters um, which hopefully Deer Johnson will be in a couple of years. Um, but also just like a guy like AO or Rich Jackson or, or Christmas a couple of years ago, where you like get him the ball in the block and something, something can happen, whether it's, it's storing uh, down low or, or opening up the shooters that haven't been open. So um, yeah, between him and Jesse Edwards uh, and some of the other guys, Marek in the middle is a super dynamic player. It's like a point point forward type. Uh, and I know that's been a, a running theme. Um, and his ability to distribute from the, from the key. Um, Hopefully we'll start to see a little more creativity and, and get things a, a little more balanced on offense. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'd love to see anything that looks like a little bit more team basketball, anything that looks a little bit more fluid. I think we'll start to get that too. Like realistically, I, I think getting a, a true point guard on the floor is going to help a lot with that as well. Um, you know, Joe Girard had a, had a quality first season. He's a little bit more of a shooter than a distributor though. And as long as that's the case for our starting point guard, uh, I, I do think that we end up with a situation where 
it's not again not slighting an individual player here. I'm not slighting Gerard. I think he actually had a pretty good freshman campaign, but I do think w- with a point guard out there who's a little bit more distribution focused, you you just end up with a better flowing offense overall. Yeah, I, I think the offense kind of did what it needed to do last year based on the players available, and obviously the point guard position was kind of pieced together. I don't think any of us really envisioned Coach Gerard being the starter a couple games into the year. Um, but, it, you know, hopefully with with more guys and, and just more spreading of the floor, um, Alan Griffin hopefully coming into the fold this fall uh, will be a big part of it. Um, but we'll just be able to balance things out a little more. And even if Gerard's starting at point guard again, which it seems like is, is very likely, um, you know, he'll, it'll be we'll, it'll be more planned for. And we can kind of develop the offense around what we have versus like just kind of throwing him in there because that was like the best option at the time. Agreed. Uh Dan also wanted to talk about um, the Syracuse front here. Uh, looks like SU is trying a different way to get out of the Carrier Dome naming deal. Uh, <laughs> this time calling it the stadium. Um, I guess they figured that legally calling it the dome and just leaving off the sponsor name probably doesn't differentiate it as a different building um, and, and a new building that can get you out of a contract. So now uh, it appears they're going to be trying something else, um, referring to it as the stadium. Um, per the uh, official release of the uh, UMBC game. So uh, I guess what's your, what's your non-legal expert opinion on this and will it work? And what what what, what, what corporate sponsor would you like from the stadium? Um, it, no one's going to call the thing the stadium. It's just never going to be uh, what anyone calls it. It's going to be the dome. Um, I don't like, I, I don't really care. <laughs> like I, the SU needs to get out of that contract. It's just money that's just, laying there for them to get um so i totally support them doing what they they need to do to get out of it um and like you know we've talked about the the whole deal so many times like it was it was done very early in the uh naming right conventions history so like we didn't really know what to do and what and it was worth and we got a terrible terrible deal out of it um so i support them doing what they need what they think is going to get that contract voided um realistically no one's calling it the stadium um obviously no one's ever gonna call any stadium the stadium um they i would love to see i mean i think wagman's is just like the super obvious one but like they're such a beloved upstate brand it makes so much sense um i think turning stone like i don't know turning stone is there is probably more heavily involved with syracuse uh right now but it just feels weird um I've seen other people flow, you know, the other stuff like Dino is not a big enough company to name the stadium, obviously. Um, yeah. What, what, big sponsor. Yeah. They, the problem with like Duncan is like they, they already sponsor Providence. Right. Um, the dunk dome would be okay, I guess. Um, I don't know. Wegman's just like streams like a really perfect marriage of like a brand that people actually love and upstate people are like ravenous about. Um, and a big enough company that's growing nationally, um, that would just make a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that. Uh, Key Bank sent one that, like, maybe. And then I've said this before, you just call the stadium the vault. And I think there's actually, like, some fun imagery there, like, without getting into uh, Scott Schaefer, like, meathead platitudes. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Shut the doors. Lock the gates. Football's a valuable commodity. <laughs> I think like what like other those are the obvious ones. I mean, I'm sure there's others. Like like you probably do like Northrop, which I would not want. <laughs> That'd be icky. Um, I mean, there's no, there's not going to be. 
don't think there's going to be any real trouble in selling this thing once once they get out of the Terrier deal. It'd be the funniest thing would just be if Terrier just just re-upped. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like fine, you guys want it? Yeah, we're not in the city anymore, and we kind of contributed to the economic downturn of the city. But you know, we'll we'll just have to keep the name. <laughs> I I wouldn't doubt it to be honest if if that ended up happening. And they like be... signed at a lesser deal. Oh God, they they got like a discount. I mean, I mean, it would actually be kind of nice for it to just stay the Terrier Dome, but like. In the event, I mean, assuming that Terrier is not going to want to renegotiate for a market price deal for a pretty iconic college sports stadium, like multi-sport um, is used from uh, late August, early September, all the way through to May. Like there are, I mean, I think the Terrier Dome is relatively iconic, even as like, you know, obviously uh, uh, inflating the value as a Syracuse fan, but like, it's also pretty instantly recognizable. People like know you know, know what the dome is if they're even just casual college sports fans. So I think they could get a pretty decent deal. Um, I don't think they're going to struggle to to get that thing named once once they finally get out of this thing. Yeah, I know I've seen estimates somewhere like three to four million as like a high end range, and I think that's fair. Like, like like you mentioned, <laughs> it, it maybe. But I mean, that was also like a couple of years ago. I feel like a lot's I changed. Mean, even that's miles ahead of the of the uh, the terrier deal. So it's like oh, of course. literally anything, even if they get lowballed because the economy is not good or whatever, is going to be so much more than what they were getting, which was nothing. They got it 30, 40 years ago now. Like, it's just hard not to, to think that like, you know, anything's going to be really nice considering what the situation's been and how it's just been kind of left there to, to you know, as like value uh, just not added, which is unfortunate. Because obviously, I think our athletic department could uh, could find some nice uses for those millions of dollars. I would concur. I I, I could think of quite a few things you could do with it. Uh, Dan, why don't we take a little break for halftime here? What have you been drinking of late? Uh, so I actually stumbled on a very small brewery in Seaside Heights, which is uh, down the street from me, uh, as I was going to a bank. Um, had no idea they were there. Uh, heavy real brewing. They are actually in the process of moving to a bigger uh, a bigger space, which is cool. It sounds like they're doing pretty well. They've only been open a couple of years. Um, uh, they were very low on stuff to get, but I grabbed two crowlers of their Midway Beach uh, Session IPA and then one of their 34 North, 74 West um, Oyster Stout, uh, which were like literally the only things they had available. So I think they've actually been selling pretty well, which is good for them. Um, the Midway was solid um you know just a really solid session uh i was actually really impressed with the uh with the oyster stout though i'm not a you know i always thought about this i i always say i'm not a huge stout person then i like try good ones all the time um but it was uh really drinkable for like the summer because obviously it's not the most obvious uh nice summer day drink i had it earlier today um really just you know solid not super heavy uh had a nice kind of like mineral mineraliness from the the fresh oysters they use in it um which is, you know, but doesn't taste like, you know, briny or anything. Had a nice, like, chocolate profile as well. Uh, so, yeah, really, really impressed by that stuff. I'm hoping that they have some more available and I can go, go check out some of their, their other stuff. But it sounds like they've been selling out pretty pretty quick. Nice. Yeah, they, they, they do sound pretty good. I, uh, nothing really crazy or, uh, or you know, new from me. i uh, just been kind of drinking the stuff that I stocked up on. Finished up the... Uh, Beachwood Hard Seltzer, uh, Physical Pog, and then uh, had some cans of uh, Timbo Pills from uh, Highland Park. So nothing uh, nothing all that creative for me this week, unfortunately. Maybe next week, though, I might have some new stuff. Very nice. But uh, why don't we move on to uh, the the actual like main topic, I guess, once we get past basketball recruiting uh, of this week's episode, is uh, Conference USA football. 
And uh, as, as those are familiar with, we usually uh, go conference by conference in the offseason for like half a podcast, talk about some random football conferences that you may or may not care about. And um, I guess let's just jump in. Dan, uh, this has obviously been a UAB Blazers podcast for many years. And uh, I, I think I think I see the UAB Blazers winning this conference again. And, and it's impressive. It really is impressive. And, and I hope we see a 30 for 30 down the road. Uh, about how UAB and Bill Clark have managed to, you know, not just come back from the brink of death as a program, but actively like return from the death, really return from the dead to become the perennial power now in, in, in CUSA, despite programs that should be well more situated to doing so. Yeah, the just in general, like the the UAB story is incredible. We talk about it every year at this podcast type. Um, we're always actively rooting for them, um, if only to spite uh, the uh, Bear Bryant family, which for whatever reason uh, decided that the UAB Blazers were a threat to Alabama football and needed to be killed. And they did it. They killed it. And then it came back after a lot of outcry better than ever. Um, Bill Clark uh, ends up in like the coach of the year conversation every year and deserves it. He's just been incredible. Um just sticking with that program after everything they went through. Uh, they're the clear favorite in the West. I don't know if they don't win the whole conference. Uh, it'd be hard not to see them winning the division. Like maybe a Southern Miss or a UNT could jump up or La Tech's always pretty good. Um, but the West just kind of seems like in a weird rut. Um, you have uh, the three kind of bad Texas schools who um, UTEP's one of the toughest jobs in the country and just perennially one of the worst teams. UTSA has had some moments, but not be able to get over the hump. UNT collapsed last year. Um, so it's it's also super interesting to see a UAB, which is far from the obvious program, just really kind of cruise to nine wins every year now. Um, but they, they should be really good at end. Like their schedule's uh, very advantageous with that weak Western division. Uh, they bring back most of a very, very good defense, one of the best in the group of five. And Bill Clark is just the best coach in this conference. And like, I think someone's eventually going to hire him, but it'll almost be kind of a shame. Yeah. Like I'm sure like the next time, like, you know, the, the usual sec, like coaching wheel ends up firing four or five people in one off season. Like Bill Clark will be one of the first calls just because of his familiarity with the area. But realistically, you know, I, I don't, I don't even know what CUSA does to fix this, to be honest. Cause you look at this conference like geographically, UTEP and, and Rice being in the same division automatically gives any capable team a chance. Uh, Louisiana Tech's obviously a pretty capable program, but they're also in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, down in Ruston. UTSA really should be better. Like if UTSA and North Texas are the like seven or eight win teams that they probably should contend to be every year, and Louisiana Tech does what it does and usually ends up in that seven to nine win range, like, then the, the three of them in UAB should actually make for a pretty interesting West, even if it's still like pretty bottom heavy uh, with two of the worst programs year over year um, in college football. But like right now, yeah, UAB has a golden opportunity here to just kind of lord over uh, CUSA and, you know, FAU and FIU are two more like confusing programs here. You know, teams that are teams that, that, that do end up with quality coaches uh, do sit in talent hotbeds and yet, um, aren't really able to put things together to the extent that you would think, uh, you know, see every single season. I think like lately FAU has been a little more consistent 
uh, than FIU has been. But really, both of these programs should be able to trip and fall into enough talent to win six or seven games a year. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not really a surprise, but it all comes down to coaching. Like, look at the programs that are good every year. Um, Bill Clark at UAB is amazing. Uh, Skip Holtz uh, out of nowhere. Uh, well, not out of nowhere. It's been he's been there for a while now, but just kind of quietly refound what people thought he had. You know, when we were looking to hire him at, at Louisiana Tech, and like honestly, probably should just never leave. Um, he's just done a really great job there. Um, up until recently, like MTSU has been uh, kind of rolling the stock still. He had a rough four and eight year last year, but generally they're they're competitive. And then Doc Holiday at Marshall. Um, always you know they fall off every like five or six years but they they bounce right back i think fau and fiu are an interesting spot because those programs have such uh high ceilings but you're going to probably have more coaching turnover as a result so you have like lane kiffin coming through probably staying longer than people thought um and then moving on willie taggart will be on the first train out of town the first time he wins nine games i'm sure um he'll want to bounce back to the the high end and prove that his uh florida state tenure was a fluke um FIU did a more interesting thing with Butch Davis is it's not super obvious that he'll leave. He'll probably, I mean, it's more likely I think that he'll retire, but this is kind of like a fun last job for him. Um, but like after that, I mean, if they want to go the young direction, like they'll just be in the same place as FAU where like you hope you hang on to a guy for an extra year uh, than you probably should have, like they did with Kiffin at FAU. Um, but it's going to be tough to like maintain stuff there versus like the places that are in weirder spots like UAB or, uh, or Southern Miss, you know, held on to coaches for a while or, or uh, you know, MTSU or Marshall where it's not like, you know, there's, there's maybe a chance of like, you're not going to see the obvious uh, churn because you're not selling yourself to Florida recruits and building that like really super high end Lane Kiffin first year type uh, team. So um, it's a really fascinating league just because the dynamics are, are like really, really different from school to school versus like, I think the Sun Belt obviously has like the programs that came up from the FCS uh, and kind of uh, just like a very different identity, despite occupying very similar spaces in the map. I know Bill Connolly talks about this a bunch of just how, you know, CUSA kind of tried to focus in on markets. I mean, American athletic conference did this too, but like CUSA obviously doesn't have the access to the same brands, but focus in on markets, focus in on potential double down on Texas. And it hasn't really worked out. And I think that that's really where, you know, the problems kind of lie is that with, with the Texas gambit, not necessarily working out as well as it should with the fact that you have the dead weight of UTEP and really like if I'm them, you'd probably be better off ditching UTEP. And I'd say even go get Texas state who we talked about last week and, and, and just trade uh, because like at this point, any, any brand recognition UTEP had um, in the past, I think is gone. I mean, you look at teams like Charlotte, like even rice is like starting to turn around a little bit, but like, there's like there are capable and solid programs here like ODU we talk about every year is like primed to be just really good um, every season and they were really good for a few years with Bobby Wilder I don't see a ton of programs that they don't have a like UTEP is really the only program in this conference that doesn't have a like capable ceiling of like eight wins you know like like UTEP is really the only program that I look at this look at the schedule and look at the talent talent base and what they can do. And, and and I can't convince myself of eight wins in, in, in some year, even if it's not like this, this coming one. And even UTEP, like obviously history point, And like a lot of people have written about this, like they have these really unique challenges being where they are. But like, I even feel like UTEP could find a way to scrape together. Like the guys that Texas Tech doesn't quite want. Plus like 
you know, there are two big schools in Arizona, but there isn't a, a small school in Arizona. Um, New Mexico, New Mexico State are like no, you know, huge powers. So like I feel uh, even maybe getting some underrated California kids, I feel like there's a path. Um, obviously, uh, it looks like they're trying to do kind of a mini Kansas State thing. Uh, which makes sense given uh, the background of the coaching staff and doing like Juco heavy. But like, even there, I don't think it's like totally hopeless. And and obviously maybe that's naive and maybe it's just like that tough, but it's in a like pretty big town. Um, It's not like like El Paso is like one of the what hundred biggest cities in the country. So, and it's still in Texas in a football crazed area. So it's, um, it's fascinating. But then, like you said, Charlotte and ODU, like ODU's proven it to a point. Obviously, they fell apart, and now they're hiring Ricky Ranney, who's recruited really well, the offensive coordinator from Penn State last year. Um, Will Healy's done a really, really good job at Charlotte. Um, he's like in his early – he's only a couple years older than me. Um, he's uh, already lost his offensive coordinator to Florida State, which I guess is a good sign. Um, but, they, you know, they've, they've what, made back-to-back bowls out of kind of nowhere – WKU, uh, Tyson Helton. I don't think anyone talked much about that hire at all. He won nine games last year after inheriting a really bad team from Mike Sanford. So, um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting league. Um, it, so, obviously, like, it doesn't seem like the, the city brand type thing paid off probably in the way they expected. But, like, I think some now that, like, the dust has settled on it, like, some of these programs are figuring some stuff out. But uh, the West, like, the UTSA, UTEP, Rice – um situation plus unt falling apart to four wins last year and i, I think that i have faith that they'll bounce back a bit but like they just need like two of those programs to actually be competitive um you can't have you can't have like what's essentially a three three and a half team division or else it gets kind of ugly considering the east actually might end up being pretty uh pretty balanced yeah that's the thing like you can do you can do balanced you can do like four deep and it's still interesting, but 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 it, but if you have a, a, a situation like the West here, where UAB is just like far and away better, um, it does get problematic. I was looking at while you were talking, I was looking at UTEP's uh, like year by year, um, just to see like kind of like where things shook out. Two thousand five, they won eight games. Um, they actually were in the AP top twenty five under Mark Price and Mike Price. Excuse me, uh, I got my sports mixed up. Um, they were 24th that season. They finished eight and four in 2004. They were 23rd, uh, in the, uh, in the AP, both of those years, they lost the ball. They lost the ball in 2014 and finished seven and six. They lost the ball in 2010 and finished six and seven. They, I don't know if they've ever won a ball. Oh, they did. They won the sun bowl back in 67. They were home game. seven, two, and one home game. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's exactly why they won. Uh, <laughs> 65 they also won the sun bowl they were uh they were eight and three that year they uh they won the sun bowl in 1949 1953 1954 and they lost the sun bowl in 1948 and 1956 i mean clearly they have no one to blame by themselves for not harnessing the powerful boston college versus arizona energy of the sun bowl i mean utep is the boston college of uh cusa when you think about it (laughs) Or the or the, what was the the pit game? Uh, pit Oregon State. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> One of the great bowl games ever. I that was a Sun Bowl, right? That was the Sun Bowl, and that, that that was the only time I've ever entertained the like "there's too many bowls" argument. <laughs> and it's not even a bowl that would be cut. Like the Sun Bowl is pretty entrenched. It's, it's like around forever. I don't care. <laughs> I can't watch this ever again. That game was that game is like there are so many weird great bowls. Um, that's like probably the worst bowl ever. Like it's. But it's still fun, uh, and it's although I don't know that cheese it bowl a couple years ago was was right there with it. 
Yeah, there's been a lot of bad ones. There's been a lot more good ones though. Like for every for every one of those, you have like you know the TCU comeback versus Oregon. I mean, even like the chicanery with us in Kansas State and the uh, and the excessive celebration penalty, like just just the background noise that comes with us facing West Virginia at any time. Like that's just Syracuse related stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm never uh, one to say there are too many bowls because like. What's the worst taste? You have an extra de- ga- uh, extra game on like December twenty third. Like, yeah, I want an extra football game to watch that day. There's nothing happening. Yeah, I agree. There, there's no such thing as too many bowls. Oh, sorry, um, sorry. We're some some players from from uh you know Marshall are gonna get some headphones. Like, God forbid. Just as long as we avoid the travesty that was two uh, Mountain West teams facing one another ever <laughs> again. Uh, yeah, more, more, uh, honestly, I would, I would support, uh, kind of loosening up the bowl affiliations. Honestly, I I almost wish there was just like a, a governing body that would select like a selection committee for like all the bowls to actually get us like some more interesting mashups than we get. And maybe you just like, you know, you can say the Rose bowl will just get their big 10 pack 12, but like, otherwise we like like the access bowls. I want randomness in these (laughs) other bowls. I want randomness and intrigue. Get us, get us style fights. I want all that subplots. Yes, like, like, like if a coach left a, a smaller school and then ends up like in the Birmingham Bowl, like 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 if a coach leaves, like if a coach leaves FIU and then the next year his his Kentucky Wildcats go seven and five, and then he has to play against FIU in the uh, in the Birmingham Bowl. Like that's a good time. Um, any school that you think BYU is most likely to fight, get yes. it done. Hundred percent. That BYU Memphis game. All, all great, great game. Um, and also, anytime you can do BYU Utah, if they didn't play during the regular season, just like BYU fights a lot um, for you know they, they they go against type pretty pretty consistently. Um, yeah, that's 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 the thing I want to. I want like I think we have a good number of bowls. I don't know that we need more. I will take them. I want more bowls in weird locations um, or like unique locations. A couple more up north, not a ton, but I like the idea of having it one at Wrigley. Uh, or Fenway, like just mix it up a little bit more. And then, um, yeah, just weirder matchups. Like, I don't think Syracuse needs to play Kansas State or West Virginia every time we make one. Yeah, it's, it's been, you know, a while since we haven't faced one of those teams. Uh, well, yeah, well, Minnesota. Minnesota. If we just want to keep facing like power conference teams for random reasons in bowl games instead of like everybody else has to play like a G5 occasionally for some reason, like we never get dealt that card. I will say someone recently mocked us to play Houston and I have, a, I'll use that as the exception to facing Dana Holgerson again in a bowl would be really, really funny. Please. Yes. <laughs> I support that wholeheartedly. The horror on his, uh, and then the look on his face as he, as he mainlines Red Bull trying to get himself up for the game that he knows he's going to lose by 20. <laughs> yes. That is, that is one I'll support. I don't want to play like Southern Miss to bring it back to the conference USA in the uh, in the the independent bowl like that that doesn't sound fun, but more weird matchups for sure just across the board. Agreed, uh, Dan. Before we go here, uh, I'm assuming you're picking UAB to win this conference, but who are they facing? Uh, I'm definitely picking UAB to win the West. Uh, the East is super interesting. Um, I think I think uh, Willie Taggart inherits a lot from Lane Kiffin. Um, he brings back most of his still positions on, on offense. He brings back a pretty intact offensive line. He somehow got Jim Levitt to take the defensive coordinator job uh, after they worked together previously. Um, and obviously he has Florida experience as well. It just seems like it makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to go FAU. Um, maybe a kind of a, a first year uh, just ramp up kind of like Tiffin did in his first year there. So 
Um, I will draw UAB over FAU in the CUSA title. Begrudgingly, I'm going to mimic your pick. I do think that FAU is probably best situated. I think WKU is going to test them, but ultimately I think that, that UAB and FAU are probably a rung above everybody else in the conference. I think Marshall's right there too. I think just like based on consistency and pedigree and they bring back like 20 plus juniors and seniors. So I wouldn't count out Marshall or WKU, even FIU. I think if they figure out quarterback could uh, make a leap, but like the East is just a lot more interesting than the West where UAB or it's like maybe UNT has a big bounce back or Southern Miss takes a step, but otherwise like UAB is a pretty clear favorite. Yeah, I completely agree. All right. So congrats to your uh, maybe like 10 and two or 10 and three uab blazers team roll damn blazers (laughs) dan anything else before we go nope hope everyone's doing well uh you know just everything we talked about last week still applies etc etc agreed everyone stay safe stay healthy uh that was dan i'm john thank you everybody for listening to troy news and absolute podcast you can rate review subscribe on itunes on megaphone on spotify stitcher tune in sure there are other ones overcast Plenty more, but that came I always from... want to say blog talk, but I know that hasn't applied in years. It's <laughs> not applied in years now. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I guess, if you really want to listen to some blog talk, maybe you can find it there. Listen, it to, an old, listen to an old episode. I'm sure it'll be timely. But yeah, that's a, that, that's a great note to end on. Go Orange. <laughs> Go Orange. <laughs>